or as someone once said, sit down if you can, after something like that, right? That's a good song. Um, good morning and welcome to the first Sunday of 2024. Uh, I trust that you are going to be blessed as you've chosen to start off your year in God's house uh, with God's people, so glad you're here today uh, with us. I, I, I'm excited also because, well, first, I'm, I'm the executive pastor, David Chan. I'm also the interim lead pastor, and it's my excited pleasure this morning to introduce to you our guest speaker. Uh, our guest pastor today, our guest preacher, uh, was actually the lead pastor here at Calvary from 1999 to 2009. Uh, back then, there was a, a young minister, like that, that I was a young minister, and he gave me an opportunity with, along with the church to serve in my first full-time pastoral ministry, and I'm so grateful, Pastor Ellis, for that, uh, in, in that, the way you've um, inver- inverted, no, invested in my life. And uh, it's just such a great joy to have him here. Pastor Ellis, after being here at Calvary, went on to pastor First Baptist Richardson for several years, and then just recently retired from that. But he's still working full-time now with Starks College and Seminary, which has a campus here in McAllen. He is their resident theologian, or public theologian in residence. Uh, Very important title. And uh, basically, he's, he's a pastor to pastors, and he's a, a professor, and he's going to help pastors develop their skills and talents in the years ahead. So uh, Pastor Ellis and his wife Priscilla live in the Dallas metro area, and they have three adult kids, Gabe, Michael, and Celeste. And some of you may remember from way back then, they were you know, yay high back then, but now they're fully adult kids. So please help me give a warm welcome to Pastor Ellis Orozco. Well, good morning. It is, oh, it's so exciting to be here. I'm so excited to be here and to be a part again. I, great to be back in the valley. I love, love, love the valley. I love the culture. I love the people, love the food. Um, I think I gained five pounds just driving into town, but uh, it's great to be here and back at Calvary. And I love this church. Such an amazing place. So thank you for welcoming me and for allowing me to come and speak God's word this morning. It is a great privilege for me to do that. And I guess I also get to say Happy New Year. This is our first Sunday back from the New Year, right? So Happy New Year. And in fact, I wanna take a little bit off of that theme of New Year and talk a little bit this morning and help us to reflect together on what it looks like to embrace a new year as Christians and embrace New Year's resolutions as Christians. So we're gonna be talking a little bit about that. And to do that, I wanna look at one single verse from the Bible, Luke chapter nine, verse 51. Luke chapter nine, verse 51, and I'm gonna read actually from several versions to try and get at exactly what, what Luke is, is trying to tell us this morning from Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter nine, verse 51, from the life of Jesus. And I'm gonna read first from the New International Version, the NIV, and this is what the word of God says. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And then I want to read it again in the New American Standard Version. And this is what it says in the NAS. As the time approached, oh, excuse me, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined, determined to go to Jerusalem. And then I want to read it in the message, which is a paraphrased version, but this is what it says in the message Bible. When it came close to the time for his ascension, He gathered up his courage and steeled himself for the journey to Jerusalem. And finally, actually for this verse, 
my favorite version happens to be uh, the King James Version. I like the way the King James Version uh, reports this verse. And this is what it says in the King James Version. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. My paternal grandfather came to the United States from Monterrey, Mexico in 1920, uh, in large part to escape the abject poverty that had been caused by the Mexican Revolution. He settled in a little village uh, south of Houston, Texas called Old Genoa. It was just east, just west of uh, Pasadena, which in that day and time was a very rural area. My grandfather was a farmer by trade and he came and he settled there. He worked hard as a migrant worker and other things and he managed to save enough money to buy a plot of land. It was just really a old cow pasture that had a caliche road that ran through the middle of it. And at the end of that caliche road, he built a house and that's where he raised his family, seven sons and two daughters. My, my father was one of the youngest of that uh, family and he raised them there. They were poor. They, they, they didn't have much at all, but they had each other. And as each of the children would get old enough to get married, they would all just pull together and they would build a house right next door on that Caliche Road. And then another house and another house. And since my dad was one of the youngest of the family, by the time I came along, there were literally 10 houses along that Caliche Road in that old cow pasture. They were all my tias and tios and primos and primas. I have 54 first cousins, okay? 54, those are just the first cousins. And we all grew up together in that cow pasture along that Caliche Road. In a lot of ways, it was really an idyllic place to grow up. I grew up with all my cousins, many of them older than me, and my tios and tias were all there. And we had huge games of kickball and hide and go seek and Red Rover, Red Rover, come over. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. <laughs> it was a great place to grow up. My grandfather, my grandmother, the patriarch and matriarch of the family, and all of my tios and tias, they all invested in us. They all nurtured us. And even the older cousins with the younger cousins, they all poured into our lives. And my, as my grandfather and my grandmother, the patriarch and matriarch, had decided, they had somehow determined, they had resolved themselves that they were going to build in this great country a better life for the next generation. It's New Year's and I love New Year's. New Year's is a great time. I, I, I love New Year's. I love everything about New Year's. I love New Year's Eve parties. I love New Year's Day. I love New Year's resolutions. I love the feeling of having a, you know, a clean slate, a, 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 new, a new start, a fresh beginning. Uh, I love the idea of having a, a whole nother chance to mess up my diet. I, I love everything, right? Everything about, about New Year's. And in fact, my contention this morning and the thesis of my sermon is that resolutions were an essential part of Jesus's life and are foundational for our lives as well. That, that there were these, these critical moments of firm resolution in Jesus's life. And that is those moments, those moments in his life of firm resolution that not only made Jesus who he was and who he is, but also were foundational to everything he did and everything he accomplished. For instance, at the age of 12, Jesus resolved that the house of God was the place where he belonged. 
At the age of 30 in the wilderness, Jesus resolved that he would serve God and only God. And in his ministry, early in his ministry on the shores of Galilee, Jesus resolved that he would ignore the call of fame and fortune in the crowds and instead would preach the good news in the small villages to the poor and the hurting and the needy. You could even make the case that Jesus coming to earth at all in the first place was a product of his heavenly resolution where the apostle Paul tells us that in in Philippians chapter two, that Jesus resolved that he willingly of his own volition, of his own resolution, Jesus, Jesus emptied himself of his divine prerogatives and humbled himself to the will of God, lowering himself to become exactly like us in every way in order that he might save us from our sins. And then there's the moment that we have before us this morning in Luke chapter nine, verse 51. That moment where Jesus has been teaching and he's been preaching and he's been performing miracles and signs and wonders for almost three years now. And he has developed and grown a a small group of disciples who have devoted themselves to him and are, are willing to follow him anywhere. They themselves have resolved within themselves to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. And Jesus knows that now the time has come. The time has come for him to go to Jerusalem. And so the scripture says that in that moment of resolution, Jesus does what? What does it say? How does it describe it? One, one version says he steeled himself. He pulled together his, all the courage he had and he steeled himself. Another version says he resolutely determined that he had to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He knew full well what was gonna happen in Jerusalem. In fact, at this point, he had already been telling his disciples multiple times exactly what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He told them, I'm going to, in in the gospel of Mark, in fact, Mark reports it no less than four times on four separate occasions leading up to this point, Jesus has already told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to evil men. They're going to crucify me. And on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. The disciples didn't like that message very much at all. In fact, the first time he told them that, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says to him, no, 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 Jesus, don't say that, right? No, don't, don't talk, You're not, no dying, Messiah doesn't die. You're scaring people. Peter, Peter tells him, look, we tested that message on the Galilean market and it doesn't test well, right? People don't wanna hear that. You need to give the people what they wanna hear, Jesus. But Jesus knew. Listen, No one wanted Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, but he knew it had to happen. And he knew when it was time. And so the scripture says, what does it say he did? What did he do? I love the way the King James version says it in this one. Because in fact, the King James version on this verse is actually the closest to the original Greek. The Greek word there that he uses literally means to set your face towards something. So it says he knew he had to go to Jerusalem. So he set his face toward Jerusalem, like a rock. You can see the determined look in his eyes that no one and nothing will ever deter him from going to Jerusalem. Everyone will abandon him. Everyone will tell him not to go, but none of that matters because there's only one thing that matters to Jesus in this moment as he sets his face to Jerusalem. There's only one thing that matters for him and it is doing the will of God. And God wants him to go to Jerusalem. 
So nothing will ever stop him. You see, he has resolved himself that he's going to Jerusalem. I'm telling you, this idea of creating resolutions in your life, of resolving yourself to something, if it's the right something, can be a deeply spiritual act of obedience. And it makes a big difference in your life. So this morning, with the rest of the time we have, I want to just briefly give you like four Jesus principles for making those resolutions, for resolving yourself. Four things I see in Jesus, what he does here, four things that I see that, that make him effectively resolve himself for God's will for his life. I just want to give you those four and then we'll be done. Okay? The first one is this, that each resolution of your life should be born out of prayer. As a Christian, you should never make a resolution lightly. You should never resolve yourself to anything. You should never determine yourself. You should never set your face towards anything without bathing that thing in prayer. The scriptures tell us that Jesus rose early every day to pray. The scriptures tell us that he spent extended times in prayer. Matthew tells us that he, that he prayed before every major decision. John tells us that when he prayed, there were tears in his eyes as he prayed over Jerusalem. And all four gospel writers report that on the night before his death, Jesus prayed so fervently about this decision. Jesus prayed so fervently about the cross and what was about to happen that the sweat was pouring down off of his head like great big drops of blood. Jesus took everything in his life. He absolutely bathed it in prayer and every action was born out of prayer. You know, our problem in this crazy, mixed up, fast paced, attention deficit world is that we're constantly running after one thing or another, the next shiny object that we're running after, the next fad, we're running from one thing to another and we're making all of our decisions on gut instinct, on, on how we feel. Instead of taking time strategically to bathe it, in prayer, the only way you're going to know the difference between what you want to do and what God wants you to do is by bathing that decision in prayer. So that's the first thing. Every resolution should be bathed and born out of prayer. The second is that every resolution should stretch you. Jesus resolved to confront his enemies in Jerusalem. As I've said, knowing what was going to happen, he knew what the end game was. He knew what was going to happen to him and it's not something he wanted to do. It's obviously not something he wanted to do because the night before his death, he goes to the Mount of Olives. So why does he go to the Mount of Olives with his disciples? Why does he go to the Mount of Olives? And we say, well, to pray. Well, yeah, but he could have prayed anywhere. Why does he go there to pray? I've been to the Mount of Olives actually. I was there in, in 2022. My wife and I went to Israel. You see a picture there? Isn't she beautiful? She's so pretty, right? I'm sorry, I got distracted. Okay, that's my wife, Priscilla. And there we're standing, we're actually standing on the Mount of Olives. And you can see behind us, Jerusalem. The Kidron Valley goes down and Jerusalem is there with the Dome of the Rock, which is a mosque now standing where the temple used to be. That's Jerusalem. And I show you that picture, not just to show you my beautiful wife, but I show you that picture to show you how the Mount of Olives is actually elevated well above Jerusalem and it looks down on Jerusalem. Jesus was at the Mount of Olives because 
It was an escape route. When you stand at the crest of the Mount of Olives, if you go down one side of that mountain, you go down into Jerusalem. But if you look down the other side of the mountain, you're looking at the wilderness of Judah, a place where he'd go and hide and never be found. Jesus is standing on the crest of the Mount of Olives, the one escape route for him to escape the cross. And on that crest of that mountain, he prays to God and he says to God, listen, if there's any other way, right, to do this thing, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to save these people besides the cross, God, you need to tell me now. The time is running out. I can still escape. Tell me now. And God said, no, there's no other way. And so Jesus goes down the right side of the mountain, the side that leads to Jerusalem and the cross. He didn't want to go, but more than not wanting to go, he wanted to follow the will of the father. You see, the resolutions that come to your life, the things that you resolve yourself to, sometimes they're things that stretch you. It may be something you're looking at that feels too big for you. Like it's scary, right? Like I, there's no way I can do this on my own strength. It's just scary. And you know what? Good. Good that it's scary. Good that you can't do it on your own strength. Because that means that now you have to depend on God. It means now you have to stand on that same Mount of Olives, metaphorically speaking. And you have to ask God to help you. You have to plead with him with tears to help you. Every resolution should stretch you in one way or another. Third, each resolution should ultimately be about helping others. Uh, Jesus was accused all the time of hanging out with the wrong people, right? He was accused of partying too much. Um, and to that, he would say, I didn't come to, for the healthy. I came to help those who are sick. So of course I'm hanging out with the sick. I came to help them, right? In other place, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve others and to give my life a ransom to pay for sins, to save people, right? That's, that's why I came. And what I wanna to say to you is that the only resolutions for your life that will count for eternity and for the long run are the ones that require you sacrificing things for other people. In 32 years of being a senior pastor, I've sat by a lot of deathbeds and I've never once heard a person who was dying ask if they could see their Ferrari one more time. If they could just touch their Mercedes one more time. If they could just see a picture of their mansion one more time. No, that when you come to the end of life, that the only thing that really matters is the love that you shared the people that you helped, the ways that you served, those are the things that matter. Those are the things that have an impact on the world. It's only love that has the power to transform. Father Gregory Boyle uh, was a Jesuit priest and in the 1980s, he was called to a parish in Los Angeles, one of the roughest neighborhoods in East Los Angeles, a drug-infested, gang-infested neighborhood. It was, it, was, it was 
set all the records for the mass incarcerations, all the arrests, the police were trying to clean up. It was just an awful place. And that's where he was sent. And he began to minister there. And over the years, he saw how law enforcement with good intentions, but tried to tried to, to arrest people and try to use the penal system to try and change the neighborhood and it changed nothing. And he decided to try love. So he started a ministry there in that neighborhood. It's a ministry that, that provide help and jobs for gang members who wanted to come out of the gangs for former gang members. It eventually became known as, known as homeboy ministries. And today, years later, it is the largest the largest ministry to former gang members in the United States. And it is, it is literally saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives from the gang life. And Father Boyle was, was speaking at Pepperdine University, a commencement speech at Pepperdine uh, a few years back. And he talked about, he told a story about going back to his old alma mater, Loyola University, to talk about homeboy ministries, trying to raise funds for homeboy ministries. And he took with him several of the former gang members who were now a product of Homeboy Ministries. They were working in Homeboy Ministries because they had started a bakery. They had started all kinds of different shops for the, for the former gang members to work in and, and, and make money. And he was taking several of his, of, of his former gang members. And one of them was a young man named Mario. And Mario was probably the most, he said, the most tattooed person that he had ever met. Had tattoos all over his body. Had come out of the gang life. And he said, on that trip, it was really interesting to see how people would react to Mario, right? Once he got out of that East LA neighborhood into, you know, no offense here, but into the white world, right? Rich world, how they reacted to him. Mothers clutching their babies and clutching their purses when they saw him. And he says, interesting, because if you know Mario, he said, Mario's actually the nicest, kindest most soft-hearted person who works at Homeboy Ministries. And he tells a story about Mario and, and, and that night that he, going before all these people to talk, to give his testimony. And he was shaking like a leaf, giving his testimony to all these people. Well, listen, I want you to listen to the story. Watch, watch this video. I should tell you that Mario in our 30 year history at Homeboy is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there. His arms are all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids that say the end so that when he's lying in his coffin, there's no doubt. And so I'd never been in public with him and we're walking and people are like this and mothers are clutching their kids more closely. I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anybody there who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say me, they'll say Mario. He sells baked goods at the counter at our cafe. He's proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So the nighttime talk comes and it's a thousand people and I invite them up to share their stories in front of all these people for five minutes each. They were terrified, but they did a good job. I invite them up for Q&A and, and I said, yes, ma'am, and a woman stands and she says, yeah, I got a question, it's for Mario. First question out the gate. Mario steps up to the microphone. He's a tall drink of water, skinny, and clutching the microphone, and he's terrified. Yes. 
And she says, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years. What advice do you give them? What wisdom do you impart to them? Finally, he blurts out, I just... And he stops. And he retreats back to his microphone-clutching, terrified retreat. But he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence. Until the woman who asked the question stands. And now it's her turn to cry. And she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are loving. You are kind. You are gentle, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand so overwhelmed with emotion that this room full of people, strangers, had returned him to himself and they were returned to themselves. And I think you go from here to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. And you stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. And you stand with those whose dignity has been denied. And you stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And you stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless. Make those voices heard. This is who we are. At the end of your life, the only thing that will really matter is who you stood by, who you stood for, and how you spent your life serving those who are demonized so that the demonizing will stop. That's what matters. So that finally, the fourth point, the fourth point in the Jesus principle is that every resolution of your life should ultimately lead to your one mission in life. What is your one mission in life? Jesus' one mission in life was to die on the cross to save us from our sins. He did a lot of other things in life, but every single thing he did was always leading to that one mission in life. You only get one life to live on this earth. One life to live on this earth. Make the most of it. What is your one mission? I told you the story about my grandfather and grandmother coming to this country and building a life, investing in us, nurturing us. What I didn't tell you is that now, years later, the product of that investment, the generations that have come. We are now all the primos and primas, all the cousins, we're all, you know, in our 60s and 70s and even 80s. And we have our own kids and grandkids and some even great grandkids. And, and when you look at that clan, that brood that all came from that old caliche road, that cow pasture, if you look at them, you're going to find people who have graduated from institutions like Texas A&M University, 
Uh, whoop, yeah, there you go. Gotta have some Aggies. Texas A&M, University of Texas, University of Houston, SMU, Baylor, Princeton, Yale, who, who these have become, who have become nurses, school teachers, educators, school principals, engineers, lawyers, nurses, medical professionals, firefighters, police officers, and one lowly pastor, theologian, seminary professor. All from that old Kalichi Road. Wow. Now my grandmother and my grandfather never got to see any of that. My grandmother died when I was an infant. My grandfather died when I was 12 years old. I was the first male in my family to graduate from college. My grandfather and grandmother never got to see any of it. But you know what? Their legacy lives on, doesn't it? Their sacrifice, their investment, their determination to build something. It lives on in every sermon I preach. My abuelito, right? Lives on in every sermon I preach and every child who is taught and guided in school and every person who is healed in a hospital, every place, every place you go, his legacy is to be found. That's what it looks like to resolve yourself to make a difference in this world. I want us to end uh, by actually resolving ourselves and I want us to do it together. And so what I've done is I've written seven resolutions. These are seven Christian resolutions. They're just general resolutions that really every Christian should resolve themselves to. So I'm gonna ask you to join me in as we resolve this year to live our Christian lives. Let's stand together and we're gonna read them. I'm gonna read them, but I want you to read them along with me. I want you to read them and I want you to, to reflect on them as you read them. These are the seven resolutions of every Christian. Let's resolve together. Let's read together. I resolve to deepen my relationship with God through daily prayer, seeking his guidance and wisdom in all aspects of my life. I commit to studying the Bible regularly, striving to understand and apply its teachings to my actions, thoughts, and decisions. I will actively participate in the Christian community, fostering fellowship and accountability with fellow believers to strengthen my faith journey. I pledge to prioritize acts of kindness and compassion, reflecting the love of Christ in my interactions with others, both within and outside the Christian community. I resolve to be a witness for Christ, sharing his love and the message of salvation with those who may not know him through both my words and deeds. I commit to stewardship, recognizing that all I have belongs to God and I will use my time, talents, and resources to serve others and advance his kingdom. I resolve to trust God in God's plan for my life, surrendering my fears and anxieties to him and relying on his strength 
to overcome challenges that may arise in the coming year. God bless you as you serve him. You may be seated.